0: Well, uh, <clears throat> very good evening to you, Unichurch. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, EV at Uni Church. It's great to be with you uh, again tonight. I hope you've had a, a good week. Uh, like Lachlan said, I just want to add my welcome to his to say, if you're new or newish amongst us, if you're visiting us, it's great that you're here. I uh, hope you have a great night with us tonight. Uh, it's my joy and privilege to try and help us unpack. Unpack Chapter Ten that was just read to us by Edmund. Um, we've been working through uh, Paul's second recorded letter to the church at Corinth, as Lachlan mentioned, and it's a series that we've titled "Power and Weakness." Uh, as you can hear, I'm starting to lose my voice today, uh, so I'm weak, but he is powerful. Uh, so bear with me. <clears throat> but we are now on the home stretch. We are now uh, turning to the final three chapters, four chapters of uh, two Corinthians. And it's in these chapters that we actually start to see the main source of conflict that's been troubling Paul. Uh, If you've been reading along uh, through 2 Corinthians with us, if you've been following along in our sermon series, uh, you should notice a stark contrast or stark change in tone to Paul as he starts this letter, uh, starts this chapter in chapter 10. But how about I pray and uh, we'll dive in and we'll see how we go. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for gathering us here this evening. It's all because of your son, Jesus, that we get together in his name. And Lord, this, morning, this evening, regardless of our distracting minds, whatever we're thinking about, whatever may be drawing our attention elsewhere, we ask that you would give us ears to hear from you tonight. Help us to pay attention. We ask that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word, that we would be more captivated by your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I uh, I read an article online this week, uh, an article that said, Google is controlling your mind. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Google, uh, but apparently every time you interact with a Google product, Google is learning more about your mind how you think, how you act. It catches every single thing you do online and builds powerful personality profiles. Uh, They know who you are, where you are, what you just bought, and what you intend to buy. See, Google may be in the business of search engines and creating Alexa, uh, but really what they're after is your mind. Google's primary business seems to be the harvesting of what goes on in your mind. Uh, I take it that's because your mind is valuable, And see, if Google can understand the way you view the world and everything in it, then in theory, it will be able to expose your weaknesses and perhaps even change your mind. And the problem Paul faces as we turn to chapter 10 tonight is that the Christian church at Corinth is being infiltrated by intruders. Intruders who are trying to change their minds. These people are undermining the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them only years earlier. And we see tonight this deep concern that Pastor Paul has for his church in Corinth. Now, you you may recall that Paul established the church during his first visit. Uh, He he went to Corinth and he was telling non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, about Jesus Christ. And a number of them became Christians, a church was established, uh, but it was a bit of a rocky road for the Christians at Corinth, uh, as they kind of navigated and tried to work out how best to live the Christian life. Uh, And now we come to this point where uh, the Corinthians are facing another challenge. And this challenge is what Lachlan alluded to earlier. It's this super apostles who have come into town. We meet these super apostles in more detail next week in chapter 11. Uh, It's up on the screen, but chapter 11 verse 5 says this. I consider myself in no way inferior to these super apostles. And that's Paul talking about the fact that he's been accused of being inferior to these other men. Now, who are these men? Well, these guys are Jews that have heard about Jesus. And they've left their Jewish region, and they're now itinerant preachers. They're going from place to place, and they're getting speaking gigs at local churches. They charge for their service. I mean, they're itinerant speakers. That's how they earn their living. But they actually charge quite a bit. And what's more, these men um, are well-trained in the art of speaking. You see, uh, rhetoric back then was a significant art form. It's perhaps similar to our modern-day equivalent of uh, engaging a lawyer if we were to go to court. Uh, I I wouldn't do very well in a courtroom if I had to speak on my behalf, but if I engage a lawyer, they're much more uh, sophisticated. Their rhetoric is much more appropriate to be speaking in a law court. And so you have these well-dressed, these good-looking guys with literally the gift of the gab going place to place talking about Jesus. But they're saying that they're superior to Paul. And now, on the surface, you might think, oh, that's not that bad. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Did you get told that as a kid by your parents? Maybe it's just me. But the thing is, is that they're actually twisting the gospel. They've misunderstood what it means to be a minister of the gospel of Christ. And I think part of the reason is because of their heritage. These, these Jewish guys, they're stuck between kind of two cultures. They're stuck between their inherited Jewish culture, and then this, between the culture of the changing gospel of Jesus Christ. So before Jesus came, died, and rose again, the Israelite values were found in the rules and practices of their kind of traditions. so so circumcision and abstaining from certain certain foods but jesus changed all of that now circumcision isn't what puts you right with god it's belief in jesus being a good person and not eating bacon doesn't put you in right relationship with god trusting in jesus does but these super apostles are still caught in a clash of cultures and so when, we, when these super apostles show up in Corinth, I, I think they may be shocked to find that these Gentiles, Gentile Christians, are not keeping to some of these Jewish traditions. They start telling them that Paul only told them perhaps half the story, that there's more to being a Christian than they, and they should start doing some of these things. But more than that, these men, these super apostles, they've, they began to attack Paul and his ministry. They began to say that he is inadequate to even be preaching the gospel He's a, he's a terrible speaker, he doesn't dress very well, and he's continually suffering. Look, he may be able to write boldly, but he's a pushover when he's face-to-face with you people. He's weak, he's pathetic, he's unimpressive. Is he even a legitimate apostle? This is what Paul has got Paul so wound up. These opponents have accused Paul of lacking integrity. And this way of thinking has started to infiltrate the Corinthian church, infiltrating the church to the point where there are some now in the church that are also accusing Paul of the same things. And so to help us understand this passage, I want us to understand that there are kind of three groups of people on view. You've got the Corinthian church, generally speaking, uh, over here. You've got the super apostles that Paul isn't very pleased with. But then embedded within the church are these few people that have started to also accuse Paul. That their, their thinking has shifted to more what the super apostles are on about, and they're also accusing Paul. These three groups of people is who Paul is going to address simultaneously as we go through this chapter. And we'll see this as Paul begins by appealing to the Corinthian Christians. He appeals to the church Uh, to to warn the few within the church who have started to think this way about Paul. But we'll see that it's actually an answer that's directed at his opponents, the super apostles. So let's pick it up in verse 1. And notice here how Paul personally and humbly addresses the Corinthians, in meekness and in weakness, displaying the character of Christ. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then Paul shifts and he he speaks in irony, quoting the words of his opponents. He says, yes, it's I who am humble among you in person, but but bold towards you when absent. And see, Paul is begging those few Christians who also think this way, that he won't need to be bold with them as he intends to be with these certain people, these super apostles. These guys that have been behaving accord, who think he's been behaving according to the flesh, and so verse two, I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we have been behaving according to the flesh. Paul points out that certain people, these super apostles over here, they judge him on the basis of human standards, according to the flesh, that. That Paul is, you know, he's fairly unimpressive, that Paul. He's not as spiritual as we are. But they've misread him and his ministry. They've they've got it back to front. You see, they claim to be spiritual because of their talents and their elegance and their, their fancy clothes and their money. and Yet these are all areas that Paul claims to be simply of the world. And they accuse Paul of being weak like the world, since he is gentle and humble. But yet these are the areas which display the character of Christ. See, Paul is not weak. He's characterized by Christ, just as Jesus was not weak, but he was meek in his ministry. See, there's a difference between weakness and meekness. And the irony is that these super apostles who are charging Paul with walking according to the flesh they actually themselves are the ones walking according to the flesh. Now, perhaps like me, you're thinking, look, the Corinthians should have known better. They should have been able to recognize this worldly one-upmanship that these super apostles are on about. But in doing so, and not recognizing that, they're ignoring the very characteristics of Jesus, their Redeemer that they claim to acknowledge as Lord. But you see, this is similar to the attention-getting entertainment Paul rebuked in one Corinthians. The Corinthians as a people are susceptible to that, and so are we. And so Paul is a little bit disappointed, I think, that some of his own sheep have bought into this kind of thinking, that they've had their minds affected by this different thinking. And so Paul, in his response here, is modeling a meek attitude of Christ, a meek attitude that stands firm on the truth, and in doing so, He is calling the Corinthians and us to do the same. Not to compromise on the gospel, but to meekly stand firm with gentleness and not be led astray with distorted thinking. And friends, this unfortunately still happens today. There are some who will twist the gospel and use it for their own own gains. False teaching takes what is true and twists it. Last week, we saw Lachlan explain the prosperity gospel, this incorrect idea that if you follow Jesus, your life will be wealthy and prosperous in this age. That's just one example. And yet, it's infiltrated the minds of so many. And so, we actually have a responsibility, church, to be gospel people, to be characterized by Jesus and firm in our knowledge Don't just assume that everything that is said from the front is true. You should always have your Bible open, checking and discerning what we say is the word of God. Because as we'll see later on, we are unimpressive. It is God that we boast in. And so for us, when it comes to genuine spiritual discernment, let's not be a church that's misled like those in the Corinthian church, who mistake meekness for weakness. Let's not be uh, people who assess a preacher based on the fleeting standards of contemporary rhetoric or seek to establish a preacher's credentials by the size of his following, the size of his church, or perhaps the car he drives or the, the clothes he wears. Because there is a real war at stake. A real war, point two. Paul's ministry in Corinth illustrates the reality of spiritual warfare. And that is the battle of our minds. Paul responds to this charge, this charge of being weak, with an extended use of a military metaphor. If you were here last week, we heard a a farming metaphor about sowing. This week, a military one. And Pick it up at verse 3 with me. He says this, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Paul says, yes, I live in the world, but I don't conduct business by worldly standards or with worldly weapons. Now, in ancient times, when you were building a fortress, uh, when they were designing the layout of the fortress, they would often have a, a stronghold or an extra um, strong tarot inside the fortress. It's the place that people would retreat to if the city walls were breached. It's a bit like a a modern-day panic room or a bomb shelter. Uh, This is the imagery that Paul is conjuring up when he uses this metaphor. Uh, An area of one's life that is seemingly impenetrable. A, A fortified wall that we hide behind when under attack. And so the question for us is, well, what are these metaphorical strongholds that Paul is referring to? It's in the next verse. Paul tells us, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. You see, the the strongholds that Paul is talking about are the meaningless arguments and the arrogant deceptions that people use against the knowledge of God. Friends, the scriptures tell us that our thinking is broken. Your mind and the way you think is just as broken as my mind and the way I think. And we have to start with this truth, that that our mind and our thinking has also been affected by sin, just like everything else. We get so caught up in our own way of thinking, don't we? So set on living life our own way instead of God's. People make all sorts of excuses not to believe in the living God. The presence of suffering in the world, no God. The supposed lack of proof for the resurrection, can't be a God. Or being bound by a perceived set of rules, don't want that, no God. You may be here tonight and you may be indifferent to God. You may be antagonistic towards God, but what you are actually, is you are rebelling against him. And this is the same idea that, <clears throat> that Paul speaks of in Romans 1. Romans one twenty one. it's up on the screen. He says that we erect barriers to shut out the knowledge of God. Read with me. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking, their minds became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We, we turn a blind eye to the very fingerprints of God that are all over the world. We trick ourselves into thinking that we're enlightened when the Bible tells us that to deny God is foolishness. Friends, don't believe everything you think. Our minds can deceive us. You must test everything. And so when Paul says in verse 4 that we demolish arguments, he's not talking about winning a debate with his opponents and driving them shamefully from the stage. Paul's weapons actually destroy the way people think. It will demolish their sinful patterns. It will demolish the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. His spiritual weapons tear down every proud thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You see, the weapons you choose are those that you have confidence in. How many of you here um, play online gaming? Any of you? Yeah, great. I don't play it. But um, you know when you're playing a video game and you've got to go choose a weapon? Usually at the start of the game, you'll start with like an average weapon, like a 9mm or something. Uh. But then as you go through the game, you get bigger and better weapons, right? And as you go through the game, you, you, you gain more confidence. But Paul's not talking about those kinds of weapons, those material weapons like guns. What Paul's refusing to use are the worldly weapons of his opponents, He's refusing to use cunning manipulation and deceitfulness. How do you change the way people think? By bullying them? By intimidating them? By being angry at them? In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that he has renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, By commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Paul would not defend his apostolic credentials with these same weapons. These same weapons that his opponents are using. Because the battle, friends, is much larger larger than that. Because the battle is in your mind. What does Paul use to penetrate even the most closed minds, the most hostile minds to God... One Corinthians one twenty two to twenty three tells us for Jews seek us for Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Friends, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. A counterintuitive truth. It's plain, it's simple, it's the weapon that Paul uses it's foolishness and weak to the world but friends it's powerful enough to change the hearts and minds of those who believe it's the gospel message that jesus came died and rose again to take away our sins that's what changes people's minds by the work of the spirit freeing us from sin friends repent and believe the gospel of jesus christ But you see, Paul's purpose is not just to destroy false arguments with the gospel. He's also seeking to bring people's thoughts under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Take a look at the end of verse 5. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. God's goal is to change the way we think. To, To be captivated by Christ, to be captivated by the gospel... And you see that in the lives of the Corinthian church, these believers who heard the gospel repented and believed. They've had their minds changed. Look around you at church. This is the truth of the gospel that has changed our minds. I'm not sure if you're aware of a website called I Am Second. A great website to go and check out later. Uh, IamSecond.com has a, over 140 videos of people who, are in the most unlikely of circumstances, have had their minds changed by the gospel. Fantastic testimonies of how this weapon that Paul is referring to, this gospel, is able to penetrate even the strongest strongholds. And the real battle begins with the way we think, not what we do. The real war is for our minds to be obedient to Christ. And that's where Paul goes next with his argument in verse 6. He says this, he says, And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. I think Paul here is giving the Corinthians a chance to deal with those that are within their church who have joined the song of the super apostles in accusing Paul. They need to help those people to repent of their disobedience or Put them under church discipline. And so verse 6 is important for us because it helps us orientate our responsibility as Christians within the church. Paul is saying that when situations like this occur, when people start twisting and distorting the gospel amongst you, that we who know the truth have a responsibility to defend it. You and I as Christians are to be obedient in dealing with and stamping out wrong thinking. This is significant to Paul, and it is the rebuke of the Corinthian church as a whole that they have allowed this thinking to creep into their midst. And so Paul is saying that when he comes, if those few are still living in disobedience, he will have to punish them. If he shows up and they are still being disobedient, because he's obviously one with authority. And that's our third point obvious authority. See, it's in this little section that Paul's main point is that he's not, he not only belongs to Christ, but he will use his authority when needed. His apostolic authority that has been called into question. But it should have been obvious to the Corinthians from the outset. He says this, Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we if you turn away from Paul, you turn away from Jesus, is what Paul's saying. You cannot turn away from Paul without turning away from Jesus. Paul was the one who came to the Corinthians in the first place with the gospel. And Paul has much more reason to be confident that he belongs to Christ. I mean, he actually had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was individually commissioned by him to go to this Gentile region. He will boast about this more in the next chapter. But the point is, Paul is obviously belongs to Christ. And his authority has been given to him. What for? Verse 8 tells us it's been given to him for the building up of the Corinthians. This authority, this power, it, it must be, wild. <clears throat> Excuse me. It must be uh, used with humility and graciousness, but is to be used for the building up of the church. Look, in many ways, Paul appears as an unimpressive man doing an unimpressive thing. And the super apostles think he's all talk, that he's bold in his letters, but weak in person. They think he's boastful. Look at verse 10. He says, For it is said of me, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking amounts to nothing. But Paul says that he will not be put to shame. The way that Paul will act out his authority in person will match the boldness that he has shown in his letters. That's what he says in the next verse. Let such a person consider this. We are, in our, what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we are present. And so, having demonstrated that his boasting is appropriate according to the authority given to him by the Lord, Paul now focuses on the various dimensions of improper boasting, the improper boasting that's carried out by his opponents. I'm at point four, if you're following along in your outline. Uh, Friends, we all like to boast every now and again, don't we? Uh, Did anyone get up early and watch uh, a national rugby team play sport this morning? Yeah, yeah, go the All Blacks, right? Finally. No, it was great. It was, it was a great game. I was uh, biting my nails at the end there, but um, we got there. Uh, we love to boast, and we particularly love to boast in our successes. Our successes as a nation, as individuals. I'm a competitive sportsman. Um, not doesn't mean I'm good at sport, it just means I'm competitive. Um, but the danger is for many of us that when our competitive nature flows over into uh, other areas of our life, we can actually start comparing ourselves to others, which is exactly what the super-apostles were doing. We're running short on time, so let me just quickly draw your attention to verse 12 and then make some application points. Verse 12 says, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but are measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves or with each other. They lack understanding. You see, the super-apostles lack understanding since they were comparing themselves to each other and to the world around them. But Paul says that's exactly what is to not take place in gospel ministry. Paul says that's exactly what is not to take place in Christians' lives. Churches should not be comparing themselves to other churches. We shouldn't be talking to people about how many people we've converted to Christianity. But we should be talking about how many people we've seen God change the minds by his gospel. Friends, we just celebrated uh, at the AGM God doing this mind-changing in 19 people this year at EV. Praise God. But, but that's what God has done, not what we have done. And this is particularly true, I think, for those of us who are leaders in ministry. It's, it's so easy to compare yourself to another connect group leader or another M driver or other pastors. We can see it clearly in celebrity pastors today. P.S. that's not a category that will be in heaven, celebrity pastor. Uh, but, but the exaltation of celebrity pastors and ministries to pedestals can prove harmful. Uh, you've seen it probably time and time again. It can be harmful to the minister be harmful to the recipients of that ministry. I'm not saying that visibility and influence are inherently bad, but I think we do need to keep asking ourselves some key questions. Do we here at Unichurch, do we carry out our ministries constantly assessing ourselves against other churches, comparing our influence, our, our numbers, and our social media hits with others? I hope not. Do we evaluate how others are doing by comparing the fruit of their ministry with ours? Or is God really the primary reference point of evaluating our ministries? I think the reminder for us today is not to evaluate our ministry uh, of our church by the world standards. This is the, the warning that has struck me as I've been preparing this passage the, the the sheer reality that Rowan, Lachlan, and I are in as much danger of slipping into the same kind of thinking that these super apostles had if we start to measure ourselves against the world standards. For proper boasting is to boast in the Lord. And that's where Paul ends this chapter. Uh, I don't know about you, but I quite like a card game called 500. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, love it. Love to play a game with you one day. Uh, But you know that feeling when you get dealt the joker in your hand, the ultimate trump card? Uh, All of a sudden, it's a a guaranteed trick. Uh, You feel like you've got the power in your hands. Uh, I I kind of see that what Paul's doing here is laying down his trump card. He throws it down and he says, look, your ultimate problem is that your boasting is self-centered instead of God-centered. Your boasting is self centered instead of God centered. And he quotes from Jeremiah 9 saying, Let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. Paul is prepared to boast in what God has done for him in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's prepared to boast in what God has done through him by the Spirit in his apostolic ministry. But he is not prepared to boast about his talents, his wealth, his power, his wisdom, or his eloquence. Friends, if if we forget this, if we forget that we are to boast in the Lord, we actually succumb to a form of idolatry. That of pleasing man and not God. Which means, however, proper boasting, though, is to boast in the Lord. Which means that we give him the praise that he deserves. And Paul understands that what ultimately matters is whether or not we gain the Lord's approval. What matters most is whether we are approved by God. So if you commend yourself, then you're not impressing the Lord. Presumably you're impressing, or at least trying to impress other people to win their approval. But God will commend those for gospel ministry who boast in him alone. And we, like the Corinthians, are commended by God to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus. Friends, Whose approval do you seek? Verse 18, For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. When it's all said and done, if someone is commending themselves, they lack understanding in their mind, and they are not approved by God. Friends, make sure you are God-pleasers rather than people-pleasers, because you play to an audience of one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word tonight. We thank you for your powerful gospel that is able to break down even the strongest of strongholds. Thank you for changing the way we think, to see you clearly for who you are. Father, may we boast in you alone. Keep us from comparing ourselves to others but as ministers commended by you for the spread of your gospel here in Auckland, we pray that you would use us as you will to see Jesus' name made famous. Amen.
1: So good to hear from God's word and reminded particularly at the end that we can only get caught up boasting in ourselves if we've taken our eyes off Christ and off God and started comparing ourselves with one another. As soon as we see Christ and see God, we recognize that we have no boast apart from Him. So we're now going to turn our eyes again to Christ, sharing together in a, a symbolic meal, a token meal. On the night before Jesus died, He shared a meal with His closest friends, His disciples. It was a Jewish meal of the Passover, which the Jews commemorated once a year to cast their minds back to the Exodus, a time when God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt, into their life as a free nation, a life of their own nation in their own land. So Jesus is sharing this meal with his disciples, but he tells them, no longer are you to remember the exodus, but now whenever you eat this meal, eating this bread and this wine, you're to remember me, remember Jesus. For in his death and in his resurrection, there's a new freedom from slavery, freedom from slavery to sin, freedom from slavery to the devil, freedom to now live For God. Great thing for us to remember as we share, and churches down through the ages continue to share in this symbolic meal of bread and wine, reminding them of Jesus' body shed on the cross for us, his blood poured out on the cross that we might be forgiven. And so, as we sing this next song, there's some bread and some juice going to get passed around. And if you want to join us in remembering Jesus' sacrifice for you, And please take some bread and some juice. Hold on to it. We'll eat and drink together after this song. But take it, hold it, and fix your eyes on Christ as we sing the song, Jerusalem.